The Bible is full of some agonizing cries. When you get to Psalm 22, it's not as if this is the first time in biblical history where people are crying out to God. There are cries for deliverance and mercy, cries of anger, cries of confusion, cries of celebration and rejoicing. There are cries of despair and lament. That's what this is. Cries of despair and lament. The opening words of Psalm 22 are surely among the top few agonizing cries in all of the Bible. Some would list it as number one. And one of the reasons the opening lines sound familiar to you, perhaps, is because of Jesus' sayings from the cross. Did you hear the words from Psalm 22:1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both Matthew and Mark's Gospels report in Matthew 27 and in Mark 15, Jesus' use of this psalm. And when we explore the event of the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross, there are a series of connections that jump out to the mind and eye. The Lord Jesus was the suffering King. That's the key that we bring to this psalm. He had come to die as a ransom for sinners. That his substitutionary death might be the grounds for our pardon from sin and our eternal life with God. Why does Jesus invoke Psalm 22 on the cross? Because the psalm is written by a suffering king and ultimately for a suffering king. David is the writer of this psalm and he foreshadows in his life the greater son to come. The one promised to him in a covenant formed in 2 Samuel 7. The superscription makes the Davidic authorship clear. It doesn't only say that it's a psalm of David. It reminds us it's for the choir master, this psalm. Reminding us of the corporate usefulness. Here is a psalm to be sung, studied, recited, meditated upon. There is a phrase that's perplexing, according to the doe of the dawn. And nobody knows quite for sure what this means. The context leading out of this superscription according to the doe of the dawn, may mean there was a familiar tune, not familiar to us any longer, but a familiar tune that the doe of the dawn would be the thing that the psalm is set and sung according to. So it's to the choir master, perhaps according to this particular tune, you're to sing it, and it's written by David. This morning we're going to occupy our minds with part of the psalm. Verses 1 to 21 is occupied with suffering. There's a major shift that takes place in verse 22 through the end, and we'll focus on that next week. We're going to occupy our minds with the scene of David's suffering in the first 21 verses, and how these scenes all along the way are going to anticipate the cross work of Jesus. For this reason, Psalm 22 has sometimes been called the fifth account of the crucifixion. And what they mean by that, those who would list it that way, is that the five crucifixion accounts would be Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19, and Psalm 22. For the past couple weeks, we've studied Psalms 20 and 21, tried to show the connections between those psalms to demonstrate how psalms can be read together alongside one another, and that Psalms 20 and 21 belong together in this way. So I want to make a claim about Psalm 22, and it's going to influence our next few weeks together. Psalms 22, 23, 
and 24 are a progression of events. That when read and studied and meditated upon together, the beauty and power of 22, 23, and 24 shine brightly. We begin Psalm 22 this morning, and in verses 1 to 21, there is a a back and forth rhythm. And the back and forth rhythm can be put under these two headings, alternating. First, the present situation of the psalmist, and then that will switch to his remembrance of something. It will alternate back to his present situation, and then go to his past remembrance of something. And then it will go to his present situation, And it will end with his remembrance of something. So the way to track verses 1 to 21 is just to notice when he's describing what he's going to and then what his mind goes back to. Because what he remembers, what he knows about God is going to help him in his present condition. The, The brilliance and wisdom of the alternating sequence is that he doesn't understand at all why he's going through what he's going through. So his mind reflects on what has happened, what he does know about God, and what others have taught about God. Remembrance guiding him through and shaping this feeling in the present of why, God, why. The present situation is described in verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? At the end of that line, we should imply, why are you so far in both phrases? It would read like this. Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? He's groaning and pleading for deliverance and God's saving hand seems far away. He says, oh my God, I cry by day. But you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. He says, listen, I'm not just occasionally calling to mind a a prayer with my situation. I haven't stopped coming to you with what's going on morning by morning and night by night. I'm coming to you. So this opening question, this present description of his situation is a description of crisis. A distress That is profound and disturbing and deep. There does not seem to be any deliverance in sight. His desperation is even signaled by the repetition. My God. My God. And this language of being forsaken is about the sense of divine absence that he feels. The writer is suffering and it feels to him like God isn't there. He feels abandoned. He feels like God's saving power is distant and he he asks why God is so far from the present distress that he as the psalmist is facing. God is so far from the psalmist groans. What he means by that is I've prayed morning by morning and night by night unceasingly for deliverance and it doesn't seem to be anywhere near. All that's near me is grief and trouble. It seems that his groans are unanswered. His cries are unheard. The distress is ongoing. So he says, why God, my God, my God, why? When we read in the context of this psalm, it seems as if this is the cry of an innocent sufferer. He doesn't look at what he's going through and think, well, given the foolishness that I sowed, totally makes sense that I'm reaping these consequences. 
Instead, this is the psalm, like some psalms we see in the book, that are righteous sufferer laments, where a writer is going through something, and it's not because he's been rebelling against God and turning from God. He's not reaping something he's sown. He's suffering as a righteous man who knows God. And the opening lines are the lines of the psalmist expressing, I feel like I've been given over to suffering. God's not intervening to rescue. When he says he wants rest, in verse 2, rest would mean deliverance from this, salvation from this situation. This is what the psalmist feels. Theologically, it is not possible for God to be absent from the psalmist. We know this if we think doctrinally for a moment, the Lord is omnipresent in his creation. The psalmist is describing what seems to be the case. I feel abandoned over to suffering, that I've been given over to grief. Deliverance doesn't seem near. Trouble is near. Your help seems far. So these are spatial references from a human perspective. They are not doctrinal truths about the psalmist's situation. And the reason we want to be clear on that is because the Lord Jesus cites this psalm in Psalm 22. Matthew 27 and Mark 15 are the places where he quotes from this. Jesus, re, Jesus in the Gospels quotes this first verse, and what, just like the tradition of his time would signal for readers, to bring up a verse brought up more than just a verse. They didn't think in terms of chapters and verses in Jesus' days. In other words, to begin quoting Psalm 22 was to bring up the whole context of the psalm. This is really important because we have in the Gospels, oh, okay, so Jesus quotes from Psalm 22.1. But I don't think we should imagine only one verse is on the lips and mind of Jesus from the psalm. Instead, we should understand that he's bringing to mind and expressing this psalm to bring the whole of it into view. And there have been some wrong ways interpreters have taken his use of the psalm. For example, in one commentary on the book of Psalms that interacts with Jesus' quoting of this psalm in Psalm 22.1. The psalmist, or the, the commentator says, At that moment on the cross, the Father turned His back on the Son, forsaking Him. The Father turned from the Son. Important to know is, the psalm doesn't say that that happened. The Gospels don't say that that happened. But this particular commentator goes on and says, The perfect Unity of the Trinity was broken for a moment. For a moment it was so. And what I want to insist on is that is not the way to take that language. It is impossible for God to change, for God to not be God who everlastingly and age upon age is the immutable, unchanging God. There is no breaking of the Trinity on the cross. There is no turning of the Father against the Son in this way. There is the Son offering Himself up in acceptable sacrifice to God who rejoices over the obedience of the Son that has taken all our shame in the stead of sinners. There is no fracturing of the Trinity. 
I would submit to you, that's actually quite a dangerous theological track to start going down if the nature of God himself would be fractured by the death of Jesus. We don't want to go that route. That route is heresy. The perfect unity of the Trinity was not broken on the cross. But rather, the redemptive action of the triune God in the person of the Son for His glory, for the salvation of the nations, is accomplished on the cross. And amen. When we read in the Gospels, Jesus' use of this psalm, Jesus is speaking from a human perspective saying, I am not experiencing divine favor, but judgment. This is not blessing, but the curse. This is not vibrancy, but agony. This is not fellowship, but exile. Jesus is the ultimate righteous sufferer. And that's why he uses the language of Psalm 22.1. The psalmist after speaking about his present distress, calls to mind in verses 3 to 5 these truths. So we alternate now from the present description of his situation to the remembrance. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Here's what the psalmist says. Lord, you have, you have a history of faithfulness. We can summarize that that's what verses 3 to 5 are getting at. First of all, his character. You are holy. The psalmist is going through what he's going through for reasons he himself does not understand, but it is not because God is unholy or unrighteous or compromised in his divine character or nature. You are holy. In fact, the Israelites would lift His name in their praises and worship so we can picture in our mind's eye the Israelites exalting and lifting up God, enthroning Him, if you will, in their praise of God for who He is. They're not wrong. So He says, here's what I know. You are holy. You are enthroned, lifted up on the very worship of your people. They know who you are. In fact, they trusted you. They not only praise you, the people who worship and praise God are those who trust God. And they trusted you, and you know what they experienced? Your faithful hand at work in their lives. You delivered them. They cried to you, and they were rescued. They were not put to shame. So he begins to remind himself of what he knows about God. It's as if he goes through this exercise. God is sovereign over all things. He's faithful to his people. He can be trusted with everything I don't understand. He is perfectly wise and uncompromisingly good. And he will accomplish all his goodwill in the world that he's made. The psalmist says, I'm asking why, but here's also what I know. Here is what I know. And my lack of understanding in some certain descriptive circumstance where I'm feeling these things in verses 1 and 2. It does not negate what I know you are like. But the people around him don't see the psalmist as anything but disposable. In verses 6 through 8, his present situation is something he returns to. What's their view of him? Those that have opposed him and are antagonistic toward him. He says, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. In Psalm chapter 8... 
God's image bearers are created a little lower than the heavenly beings to have dominion over all things. And he says, that's not how I'm being treated by those around me. I'm a worm, not a man. They're not even treating me like a human being. I'm not a man worthy of dignity and respect to them. I'm scorned by mankind. So I'm taking the phrase, I am a worm and not a man, in light of what follows in that verse. Scorned and despised. And then in verses 7 and 8, the mockery and the scorn that is expressed. I think he is describing what he is like in their eyes. He is just a worthless worm. Something that is lower than the lowest among creatures in God's creation. Easily destroyed, easily discarded, easily ignored. Something to be stomped upon and trampled. He says, I'm not even a man to them. And the reason we know that this is metaphorical, figurative, is because he says, I'm not a man. Well, we know that he is a man, so he must mean something other than Actually, in his nature, not being a man. He's scorned by them, by mankind and despised by people. This is not because 100% of mankind have enrolled in a poll and offered their antagonistic uh, vote against him. This is a hyperbolic statement. He's basically saying, I'm surrounded by people as far as I can see who are opposed to me. And what they do in verse 7 is they mock me. They make their mouths at me, which means I think they're saying to one another derogatory things about him, deriding his faith, scorning him openly with their mouths, making mouths at him. It's like if he could read their lips, what they're saying with their mouths is just awful and condescending and dismissive. They wag their heads. You can just imagine the contempt. They pass him by and they just shake their heads at him. I can't believe this guy. I can't. You can see who he is and what he's going. And in verse 8, they begin to say out loud, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They mock here, not just the reality that he's going through suffering. David, as a psalmist, is someone who trusts in the Lord, and other people know that, and they make fun of that also. They say, oh, you're going through this whole thing. You're despised. You're scorned. Well, you know, apparently, if you trust in God, He's going to deliver you. So go ahead. You know, you trust in the Lord. Let God deliver you. Let Him rescue you. Their mockery and their contempt is repulsive. So He moves from His present situation, where no one is caring for Him, No one is attending to his need. No one is looking out for his best interest. But they're despising and scorning him. And he says, here's what I now remember in verses 9 and 10. The remembrance. We alternate to the remembrance in verses 9 and 10. He says, yet you. So the alternating sequences, he's talking about what he's going through. And then he says, yet, yet you. You, God. What is it about God now in verses 9 and 10 that he remembers? That he had been committed to the Lord from his earliest years. That from his earliest years he was learning about God. Coming to know God. Being taught the way of God. He says, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you've been my God. What's this language trying to convey? To take someone from the womb? Is the picture perhaps of someone uh, in the the doctor's office or, or acting as the midwife ready as a caregiver to supply that child to the mom, taking them from the womb. And God is a caregiver for his people. 
You are he who took me from the womb. And and what have you done? You have helped me to trust. Because it's not easy for the psalmist in this situation to just compartmentalize his suffering. We can't just flip those switches, you know. When we're going through spiritual and emotional travail and bodily disaster, you can can hear doctrinal truths and theological claims and realize, I wish I could just turn off like switches and compartmentalize what I'm going through. But we we are such a kind of people designed by God that we can find it difficult to trust the Lord when things are going absolutely out of control. And this psalmist here, This psalmist says, first of all, God, why? (laughs) Why? But then remembering what he knows and then describing how everybody's just surrounding him with mockery and scorn and contempt. But then then he knows in his mind what is also true. You can feel in Psalm 22 the wrestling of the psalmist who does not understand these things, but he will not turn from God. How do we know the psalmist hasn't turned from God? Because we have Psalm 22 prayed to God. In other words, the existence of Psalm 22 is a psalmist fighting for faith in God. That's what you're reading. It is such an example for us and such an encouraging model for us. Because this psalmist is experiencing what to some degree or another can be part of our human condition in a Genesis 3 world. We know this is true. So he says, I was cast on you from my birth. In other words, I was, I was put toward you, directed toward you. People pointed my eyes to you, directed my heart to you, to know you, to worship you, to love you. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. I think it's his way of saying that through many dangers, toils, and snares, I've already come. By grace you brought me here and you will lead me home. Same grace you've caused me to trust you and to see you, to learn of you. And now here's my present situation. He returns to it in verse 11. His petition in this case and present situation combined. Verses 11 through 18. The longest section of our passage this morning. Verses 11 to 18 includes a petition, a a plea that's totally explicit here in verse 11, not implied. He says, be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. He's in the kind of situation from a human perspective where someone would think the only way I'm getting out of this is God alone. There is just no human cleverness There is no strategy. There is no mustering up my energy and will. There is only God. There's just God here. Be not far, he says. That language recalls the opening of the psalm. He says in verse 1, why are you far from saving me? He, He wants deliverance to hasten to him. So even though deliverance has not yet come, he's turning to God. Because here's what he knows. There is none other than God for him to turn to for the help that he needs. In other words, the most self-destructive thing he could do in his suffering is to turn from God. So he will not do it. He says, be not far from me for trouble is near. There is none to help. 
Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Now some animals are going to be invoked here. And we don't mean actual animals. These are, these are metaphorical. Just like in verse 16, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. He's describing his enemies as beastly. As beastly. Bulls that encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. Bashan is a region today known as the Golan Heights. And the bulls in that very lavish and lush vegetation um, involved region of the land would grow at tremendous size. When he says strong bulls of Bashan, he was speaking proverbially about what everybody knew those bulls would be like. He says, my enemies are strong like those bulls they raise on that part of the land. And they're encompassing me, surrounding me. In other words, what's near? He doesn't feel like deliverance is right near him. He just feels like his enemies are right near him. He doesn't feel like God's rescuing grace has drawn close. He feels like all of his mockers and scorners have drawn close. That's the, that's the tension he feels. They open wide their mouths at me like a raven, ravening and roaring lion. This may be the verse Peter draws upon in 1 Peter 5.8 to describe not just the enemies of God in general, but the arch nemesis of God's people, that the devil is like a roaring lion, a prowling lion, seeking whom he may devour. And here you have, if you will, those who are the seed of the serpent surrounding the king. They open wide their mouths like a ravening, roaring lion. They're ready to feast. They're ready to consume. They're ready to end him now. And he is so weak. Listen to him describe his strength. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So what he's saying to the Lord in verses 14 and 15 is, I have no strength in myself. For this, I cannot do it on my own. Being poured out like water is another way of saying you've come to the end of an agonizing experience and you say to yourself, I am completely drained from what I just did. When he says I'm poured out like water, he's meaning water as that life-giving nourishment his body needs. He said, I don't have any of that anymore. I'm poured out like water. I've emptied all my strength and vitality and my bones. I'm not even coordinated. I can't even balance myself. Everything's out of joint. I don't have the bodily strength or the bodily frame and structure anymore to deal with this. That's outwardly. Inwardly, he says, my heart is like wax melted. He's picturing, I think, the trials as a kind of fiery trial. And you put wax close enough to fire, and what's it going to do? So he says, what I've gone through has melted my strength on the inside. It's, in verse 15, dried up my strength like a potsherd. I don't use the word potsherd very often, basically when I read Psalm 22. And uh, the word potsherd is something that an archaeologist would come across, a broken piece of pottery. And essentially, when somebody comes across a broken piece of pottery from the ancient world, they realize that its original function is lost. 
For the reasons it was made, it's now useless. It's a broken piece of pottery. Now they might encase it behind glass and call others over to look at it, but it's still not functioning like it would have been. And he says, he says, when I look at my present situation, I feel like the person I was and the strength that I had and the endurance I had enjoyed, I don't even recognize myself. I'm not even functioning like I would have. I feel inwardly and outwardly completely undone. My tongue sticks to my jaws, I think picturing there the thirst that his body would have. His tongue is so dry that there's no moisture in his mouth. Things are sticking when you wouldn't want it to. His strength is dried up. He is broken and weary and ready to go in the dust. Being laid in the dust... That's just figurative for death, isn't it? It's reminding us of Genesis chapter 3. When Adam is told that from dust you were taken, and to dust you shall return, he says, well, I'm on my way. I'm on my way to the dust. You lay me there because I have nothing inwardly, nothing outwardly. And he goes on to say in verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. This is how we see confirmed in the psalm that he doesn't mean actual animals. He means his enemies. The company of evildoers encircles him, and in their attacks, he has tried to fin them off with whatever small strength he had. Now, if you imagine a pack of dogs, or you imagine a ravening lion, and just think of yourself as defenseless with regard to a weapon, but you've got your hands and you've got your feet, and they're upon you, and they're ready to consume you, and you're fighting, and by the end of it, your hands are all cut up, and your feet are all cut up, they're pierced, let's say. And therefore, the suffering that you've endured, you've got the wounds, okay? You've been marked by the trials and what you've gone through. The affliction has not left you unshaken. It has shaken you to the core. And he says here, they pierced my hands and my feet. These dogs, these lions, these bulls, I tried to fend them off. And then when I look at my hands and my feet, as I push them and I kick them, I'm completely wounded in hands and feet. He says in verse 17, I can count all my bones. This is an image of malnourishment. If someone could look at their body in a mirror and count all of their bones, it is to say that their flesh does not look as healthy as it once did. He's saying, I can count all my bones. And they stare and they gloat over me. In fact, they've already seen him as good as dead. Why can they why can he count all of his bones? Because they've taken his garments. That's why he can see his bones and joints poking into and outward from the skin. He says, they take my garments and they're already dividing them up. Who's going to get what? They're casting lots. This one goes to you and this goes to you. The upper garment, the lower garment, and whatever layers he has... We're going to divide all of that up. To us, that guy is as good as dead. He won't need these in a moment. It's picturing these people treating him as if he were not even a human being, but a worm, despised and scorned. So he returns with petition and remembrance in verses 19 to 21. The petition is longer and the remembrance comes right at the end. Same as verse 11, he says in verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. This is his prayer. Verse 11 and verse 19 through 21. He is praying for God 
to bring his rescue so fast and so close that it overwhelms his enemy and delivers his people as if he is going through a red, the Red Sea that's just been parted by the power of God when no way out but God was noticed. You, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. This is not a psalmist who has turned from God. What does he consider God? Look carefully in verse 19. You are my help. Where does my help come from? The psalmist asks. Not in this one, but in another psalm to come. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. So here's what this psalmist knows. Okay, these enemies have surrounded me. I'm marked up inwardly and outwardly. I show the signs of affliction and trial and hardship. Where is my help? It's not coming from those guys. My help is from the Lord. Oh, my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. Picturing a weapon that they would carry. No doubt what would pierce hands and feet. Deliver my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. So those same, same images for his beastly enemies that were used earlier. He's just repeating them, right? Dog and lion. And there at the end, here bulls or oxen in verse 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now it's the end of verse 21. It's a bit of a curveball. We didn't expect it to end that way. Here's how it might have sounded in our minds. Deliver my soul. Deliver my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Rescue me from the horns of the wild oxen. And that would have been a fitting prayer. But he doesn't just petition in verse 21. It seems to end with a remembrance that he knows what it is to be delivered from his enemies before this. In other words, I want you to do this because you have done this. I'm calling upon you, O God, to come to my aid because my life with you is one characterized by your faithfulness. You have already been like this. So, O God, come quickly to my aid. The petitions are in quick succession. Don't be far off. Come quickly. Deliver my soul. Save me. He's praying for deliverance to God, His help and strength. We know... From verse 24, just to peek a moment, he says, He, God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the sufferer. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard. So the psalmist feels... That God must be so far away. But he's not. He's not. The nearness of the love and covenant hand and power of God is nearer to us than all his enemies. They cannot get closer to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You should read Romans 8. His love for us is not far, but nearer than your very breath. The psalmist embodies the hymn lyrics. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale. 
my anchor holds within the veil. It holds. It holds. In every high and stormy gale. The experience of the suffering king in Psalm 22. In his grief and sorrow is not the whole story. There is another section of the psalm. And it is section of victory and hope and worship and adoration. The pattern of suffering and vindication not only marks the life of David, it is a pattern most keenly fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Because the Lord Jesus is the consummate righteous sufferer. The language in the psalm has a remarkable resonance in the Gospels. I want you to hear some things. And it's why Charles Spurgeon says in Psalm 22 that more than all other psalms, Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. Matthew 27, 46. At the ninth hour of the day, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he cry that out? Because the Trinity just broke? No, that is not what we say happened. It is not possible for God to cease to be God. That's theologically disastrous. Why does Jesus proclaim the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, he is experiencing not favor, but curse. Not the vibrancy of life and fellowship, but judgment. Our sins counted to him on the cross. In Matthew 27, 39, those who passed by while Jesus was on the cross, listen to Matthew 27, they were wagging their heads. Why does Matthew give you that detail? Because in the chapter, he's already citing Psalm 22, giving it what was on the lips of Jesus himself. But even in the description of what's going on, they're wagging their heads like those mockers of Psalm 22 did. In Psalm 22, 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. In Matthew 27, 39, in this second allusion, those who were by Jesus on the cross were wagging their heads at him. So why do I need to know the motion of their head? So that you can see that this is the suffering king on the cross. That's why. And that you know when you read through verse 21, you realize there's a lot more verses to come of victory. To pay attention to Psalm 22 means suffering will give way to glory if we keep reading. In Matthew 27, 43, the bystanders mock Jesus. They say to Jesus, or about Jesus, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. Why do they say that? Because in Psalm 22, 8, the mockers said of David, He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. Oh, what utter spiritual blindness was upon the hearts of those around the cross who were actually fulfilling the worst kind of role, and that is the mocker, the scorner, Treating Christ not as a man, but as a worm to be rejected, despised, and destroyed. In Matthew, in Matthew 27, 43, we read that. In John 19, 28, Jesus, knowing that it was all now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. What scripture would be in view when he says, I thirst? Could it be, some scholars suggest, from Psalm 22, verse 15, my tongue sticks to my jaws, which would be an intense and awful feeling of thirst. Matthew 27, 35, we read that after they crucified him, they divided his, or when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. 
Mark tells us the same thing. Luke tells us the same thing. John tells us the same thing. All four Gospels tell you that they divided his garments because he was as good as dead and he wouldn't need those clothes anymore. Crucifixion was a one-way trip. In John 19, 24, John even tells you, this was to fulfill the Scripture, which says they divided my garments among them. I wonder where John is quoting with such a Scripture in mind. It's Psalm 22. You know that. In Psalm 22, these are, these are at least five allusions in Psalm 22 to those gospel passages. In uh, those gospel passages to Psalm 22, the Psalm of David, of his greater son. Consider that the scene on the cross is also where his hands and feet are pierced, reminding us of verse 16. A company of evildoers encircled me, and they've pierced my hands and feet. For David, it was an experience of a physical and emotional agony. But for Christ, the piercing is fulfilled by crucifixion. When we read Psalm 22, we see why it has sometimes been called the fifth account of the crucifixion of Christ. Because here we behold the Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. The suffering king fulfilled the tone in the text of this psalm. He was condemned so that in him we would not be condemned. He faced the exile and curse of sin on the cross so that in him we would know reconciliation and pardon from sin. He was poured out so that we could be restored and he was rejected and despised so that we could be accepted and forever loved in the everlasting life of Christ. We read Psalm 22 and if we keep reading, we see how suffering gives way to glory. Let's pray together.